Uh, this morning we've got uh, an opportunity to have um, uh, Chris McGuire. His name just slipped my mind for a moment. That happens to me. It's out on the water too long yesterday. Um, but uh, Chris and Andrea and their girls have been uh, attending our church for uh, just around two years now. And it's been uh, just a joy to get to know them and their family as they've uh, uh, joined with us and as they've uh, ministered uh, with us. Uh, last summer, Chris and Andrea and Kathy and I, uh, team taught a course on parenting. And um, it was just a great opportunity to work together with them. And he's been leading a growth group as well for this last year. And just as a heart and a passion for God, uh, Chris is, uh, I guess what you'd call sort of a lay preacher. And uh, they came here from Calgary where for seven years uh, he and his wife and family uh, participated in a church plant in Calgary. And when you participate in a church plant, you do just about everything. Uh, I think the only thing that he says he didn't do there was do the nursery. And I'm, I'm a little discouraged to hear that you didn't because I've done nursery, Chris. Um, <laughs> But uh, part of the responsibilities we're preaching, and uh, he's had opportunity to preach in a number of different places. Um, but it's uh, an opportunity to, to allow him to share the Word of God with us and um, for us to get to know him and uh, him to uh, declare God's Word to us. So uh, we've asked Chris to speak to us this week, and he's going to just carry on in the book of Acts. So, Chris? We're going to be in Acts chapter 12, verses 19 to 25. So let's read those. I'm going to read out of the King James. There are Bibles should be in the chairs in front of you if you don't have one or if you didn't bring yours today. So feel free to grab one of those and read along with us. Take one home if you don't have one. That'll be your personal Bible. Acts chapter 12, verse 19. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and their abode. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god, and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Let's go to God this morning and ask God for uh, him to work in our hearts. God, thank you so much for our opportunity to be here, for the beautiful place, the paradise in which we live. And God, for those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, the paradise that we have to look forward to, thank you for the peace that we have with you through Christ. God, please help us to be supple this morning. Please help us to open our hearts and to be surrendered to allow your Holy Spirit to work in us, to change us, to bring us in synchronization with you and with your will. God, I pray that you'd work in my heart, that you'd help me to preach your word faithfully, and that you'd help me to allow the Holy Spirit to work through me. God, I pray that you'd bless as we commune with you this morning. Ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. I want to talk about trading places this morning. And yes, the movie title was going through my mind when I picked the title of the sermon. Somebody mentioned that right away this morning. Trading places. There are two sets of positions that are reversed in Acts chapter 12, verses 19 to 25. And I'm going to cheat a little. 
I'm going to borrow from last Sunday's sermon. I'm going to uh, take what Paul has already preached because I needed it for, for mine to set up a juxtaposition, a contrast. And so two positions that are reversed. Uh, two positional swaps. The first position that is swapped concerns our position in God. Our position in God. And when I say in God, I mean both literally in God, and I mean also in God's power, in God's hand, under God's control. Our position is in God. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you're willing to accept it or not, this morning, our position is holy in God. We are completely and wholly in God, in Him and in His control and in His power. We have no power of our own. I want to talk about three ways that we're positionally in God. Three ways that our position is in God. The first way I want to talk about is our physical position. In Acts chapter 17, verse 28, it says, For in Him we live and move and have our being. In Him we live. In Him we move. In Him we have our being, our existence. Colossians 1, 15-17. At the end there it says, All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. All things consist by God. Our existence, our very existence, and our consistence is in God. God speaks and things exist. God just speaks and things exist. In my home, I speak and sometimes things change. But I can't speak and make things exist. God speaks and he brings about both physical and spiritual existence through his speech. Our existence, God's speech is from his will. So our existence really is by God's will. We exist by His will. We are still exploring our physical existence. We still do not know the depths of our physical existence. We still do not do know the height, the height of our physical existence or the breadth. We have yet to plumb the depths of our physical reality. Scientists are using machines miles long, synchrotrons, over in CERN, they're using these. They send particles, little pieces of matter at speeds near the speed of light, incomprehensibly fast, and they smash them together. Much like I did as a kid when I took my G.I. Joe toys and I threw them up in the air and I landed them on the rocks to see what they were made of. I wanted to smash them apart. Scientists are still doing the very same thing. So really, I was a genius as a child. I was on the right track. I just needed to go faster. They want to know what we're made of. What are we made of? We know we're made of skin and bones and muscle and tissue, all kinds of icky stuff. What are those made of? Those are made of molecules, biological molecules, which are made of, well, we're made of cells, which are made of molecules, which are made of atoms. Atoms are made of electrons and protons and neutrons. That wasn't enough, so we went deeper and we found that there was quarks, strange quarks, charm quarks, up quarks, down quarks. And now we're going, trying to go further and further. Apparently we've discovered the Higgs boson, the, the particle that gives everything mass. We're trying to go deeper and deeper, but we have yet to find what the smallest thing in our physical reality is. 
we don't know how small it goes. We have no frame of reference to know where we are in the scale of size. I find that a little disturbing. It's hard to place where I am in reality when I don't know how small, small goes. We are stretching out to try and find the limits of the size of our reality. How big is the universe? And is the universe the only universe? Or is it just a tiny bubble in a sea of universes? 1977, NASA sends out the Voyager 1 space probe. And by somewhat of an accident, uh, I think around the orbit of Titan, one of the moons of Saturn, Voyager 1 gets spun off and catapulted out into space. It travels now since 1977, 34 years has traveled billions of kilometers out into space. Billions of kilometers. Uh, and it hasn't even escaped our solar system. It's now in what you'd call the heliosheath. It's the very outer limit of the effects that our sun has on the space around it. Billions of kilometers. And it still hasn't got out of our solar system. We have yet, even if we found the very smallest thing we could find, and there was a small, a, a lower limit, or an upper limit, We have not found the place where heaven is or where hell is. Is it a separate dimension? Is it a place in space? Some theorize that at the very bottom, the world is made of little tiny vibrating strings, sort of like a a quantum orchestra, if you will, where each uh, frequency determines the physical properties that that we see in our physical world. We are afloat, really, In a vast sea of God's will. We don't know what the bottom is. We don't know what the top is. We don't know how wide it goes. We're kind of floating on the sea of God's will. We can see no end. Not in in time, not in space, not even in possibility. So that's that's our physical position. And I wanted to highlight the physical position because it's going to be important as we tie into this into this scripture. But I also want to highlight our our spiritual position. We have a spiritual position in God. 1 John 4.15 says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Now that brings about a big if. It says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That is a a linchpin for our spiritual position. Romans 8.16 The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God, we are in God. If we're his children this morning, and God is in us. That's our spiritual position. We also have a temporal position, a position in time. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, with no end. Revelation 22.13 says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Psalm 94 for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past and as a watch in the night. My God owns time and we are but a small piece of it. James 4.14 says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Physically, spiritually, and temporally, we are in God. We do not control ourselves. We do not, we cannot get outside of this reality that God has us in. We are in God. So now that we've reviewed our position, I want to look back at how Peter was kept physically. 
and this is where I borrow from last Sunday and, and, and rehash. Peter, if we look in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, was easy to find. It just says Herod went out and got him. He got James. He killed James. The people were happy. The Jews were, were, were patting him on the back. And so he said, I'll go get Peter as well. He goes out. He gets Peter. No problem. He confines Peter between two soldiers. He binds Peter with two chains. Peter is guarded by two wards, whether they're guard posts or doors or I don't know what they were. He puts him behind an iron gate. And yet we see that Peter is asleep. Um, I'm not... I haven't been in the prison escape business for quite some time. But when I was, and I wasn't, uh, I know that sleeping is not part of the plan. You do not sleep when you're waiting to escape. So we can see that Peter wasn't trying to escape. It seems that it was the furthest thing from his mind. Now, we don't know why he was asleep, but I don't think it was part of his plan to escape in the wee hours of the night. And yet we see in Acts chapter 12, verse 19, Peter is nowhere to be found. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not. So Peter, who is easy to find in verse 3, is now nowhere to be found in verse 19. That was how Peter was kept. Now I want to look at how Peter was freed, because I think this is interesting, and it it shows us some things. I want you to notice the miraculous way that God frees Peter. God could have walked Peter through the wall. God could have knocked the wall down. We saw that in Jericho. Uh, God could have opened up the earth and maybe got Peter down into some subterranean passage. We see that with Korah and his group of rebels. Uh, Peter could have simply been transported out of the prison. We see that with Philip as he was talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, or save Peter in, a, in any other imaginable or unimaginable, miraculous and supernatural way. God could have got Peter out anyway. But instead, the way God saves Peter is that he undoes and undermines everything that Herod had done. I think we, we would do well to pay note to that. That everything Herod sets up, and Herod sets up quite the Houdini escape act here, except for the sleeping part. And yet, God goes through and undoes it all. So we need to be very careful when we set up things in our life, where we set up boundaries and walls and obstacles for God. God here undoes them all. An angel walks in. And I'm no expert on Roman prison regulations, but somehow I think visiting hours were over. An angel walks in. That is the beginning of an epic right there. An angel walks in. The Bible says that some have entertained angels unaware. So I may have entertained an angel unaware. Hopefully my wife was there. She's a fabulous entertainer. Me, not so much. But I haven't seen an angel. An angel has never presented himself to me. When angels present themselves, things start moving. Things happen. Angels are powerful. We've seen that in the Bible. You could have a 180,000 man strong army, but if an angel shows up, you might as well walk away or, or run. So an angel shows up. And then there's light everywhere. As far as prison escapes go, not the sneakiest move you could do. Flipping the lights on so everybody can see everything. We see his chains fall off. There was a store, or is a store in Victoria, Tony's Trick and Joke Shop. You can get fake handcuffs that you can that you can trick yourself out of. These were not Tony's Trick and Joke Shop shackles. These were the real deal. Try and say that quickly. I had to practice. 
The soldiers sleep through everything. All of it. The lights, the shackles, the angel. Uh, I was coming to bed the other night, and uh, I came upstairs, and whenever my wife goes to bed uh, before me, a part of her brain stays awake and alert for me when I come to bed. And then a part of her brain will wake up. Not the whole thing, just a part of it will wake up when I come in. So I flicked on the light, and the sound of the light switch wakes her up. I was in the kitchen at this point. My wife was alert for me. So these soldiers are alert. Now, their life depended on holding Peter. If they lost Peter, they lost their life. So this was important. Part of me thinks that if I was guarding somebody with my life, I would have a part of me that would be alert for noises and for angels and for lights. And then Peter gets dressed once again. I think if I was trying to escape a prison cell, I don't think I would take time in between two sleeping soldiers whose Life is dependent on me not getting away and putting my clothes on. I think I would just leave them behind. But God has other plans. We're not leaving your clothes behind. We're taking everything. We're completely getting you out of here. You're going to walk out. The wards, whatever they are, guarded doors, they're useless. The gate opens by itself. Uh, If you are a gate uh, and you open by yourself in a prison, you have completely failed your entire purpose in life. You are the antithesis of gatehood. In today's vernacular, fail. And I want to springboard off that last point. Um, This gate opening of its own. And just kind of highlight how we sort of tend to view reality and how reality really works. How does reality really work? Now, I've never had a door miraculously open for me. I go to the supermarket. I step on the pad. The door opens. We've all had that, hopefully. But not when they lock the door and not when they turn off the sensors. Doors don't miraculously open. It's a miracle if I can get my carport door open because the key is all worn. But doors don't miraculously open. We see gates as impassable. And experience tells us that this is so. Gates are impassable. It is not so. It is not so. Is our God bound by the laws of physics? Or... Is it the other way around? Jesus is traveling in a boat with the disciples and a storm comes on. What does Jesus say to the storm? Peace, be still. Stop it. Cut it out. Calm down. I can picture a Doberman, a big Doberman. They're scary looking animals. And he's slathering and he's barking and he looks poised to do great violence. And Jesus just snaps his fingers. And the Doberman just submits. That was Jesus with the storm. Storms are phenomenally powerful. They're crazy powerful. They're almost unimaginable. The force of the winds and the waves, and yet Jesus just says, cut it out. If Jesus was driving down in the family station wagon down to Disneyland and the storm was in the back, you'd hear Jesus saying, you know, if I have to pull over and come back there, you're not going to be happy. My God owns the laws of physics. Don't make me pull this reality over. And then we see Peter gave God the glory. In Acts chapter 12, verse 17, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. This is Peter's physical reality. Peter was kept, and then Peter was freed. Herod, unlike Peter, starts out free. Free to come and go as he pleases. He was king. He had ties with Caesar, Claudius Caesar, had put him in his position. He had the ear of the emperor. 
He had horses. He had chariots. He had yachts. He had Winnebago's. He had private jets. He had tour buses. He could go wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He was king. Nobody would tell him no. Not unless they wanted to end up where Peter was. He's free to travel down to Caesarea. As a side note, some people say Caesarea. I looked it up. Everywhere I looked it up, it said Caesarea. So I'm going to go with it. Herod started out free. Herod was full. Oh, that's another side note. I actually pronounced it wrong. After all that study in the first service, I pronounced it wrong. (laughs) Herod starts out free. Herod was fooled. Herod succumbed to the whims of his political supporters, the Jews. Where Paul persecutes the church out of zeal. Herod persecutes the church out of political ambition. Herod succumbed to the political flattery of those of Tyre and Sidon. He had commercial and military power over those of Tyre and Sidon. Coastal cities did a lot of shipping, importing, exporting. They were reliant on Herod's country. Their country was fed by his country. And he succumbed to their flattery. Now, when you have political and military and commercial power over somebody and they flatter you, that's not honest flattery. We also see it's been theorized that they bribed their way into his good graces through his chamberlain, Blastus. So this is a very empty flattery. So Herod succumbed to the political whims, to flattery. Herod misinterpreted. Herod misinterpreted God's lenience. Herod had just killed James. And it seemed like he'd gotten away with it. Things were going great. Took Peter as well. Herod misinterpreted Claudius Caesar's favor. He had misinterpreted his family connections that got him where he was. The Herod clan was a big, nasty, murderous, incestuous family. And he had a lot of family connections. And then he was a political maneuverer. He was a good political mover in his own right. He had to work his way up to that kingship. He found himself in prison at one point. But he misinterpreted all those things for real power. I mean, in in the mob uh, vernacular, he would be a made man. He was made. He was done. There was no moving for him. But he misinterpreted that for an unassailable position because of what his physical reality was. How often do we misinterpret our physical position for an unassailable position. Remember that we are afloat on a sea of God's will, not our own doing. When the people shouted that it was the voice of a God, Herod wasn't looking up. He was looking down, and only a little bit down. He was just a little bit over the people. He didn't look way up at God who owned the universe. In his Ignorant and gross misinterpretation of his position, he pictured himself on the tippy top of the universe, the king. Herod was free, but Herod was fooled, and then Herod was killed. Herod had no power at all over his own body. And Herod dies a horrible death precisely when God decides. In Luke chapter 12, 25 and 26, Jesus refers to the power for us to grow ourselves by a cubit, the thing which is least. That's the smallest thing. I would love to see if anybody can grow themselves by a cubit or about a foot and a half. I I would love to see that. Verse uh, 23 of Acts 12 says, And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him. God showed Herod just exactly what kind of physical position he was in. 
where we see in James chapter 12, verse 2, or in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, James dies what you would consider back then to be a culturally shameful death, a death of a deceiver of the people. But as a, as a Christian martyr, he died a very honorable death. Herod was eaten by worms. Yuck. Yuck. I was at the river the other day, and somebody got a leech on them, and that's bad enough. But to be eaten by worms? Uh, there's just, there, I don't know, there's, there's worse, I'm sure, but that's pretty bad. So we see that Peter and Herod traded places, really. Peter is on death row. Tomorrow he dies. He's in prison. And yet he walks out of the prison, hale and hearty and very much alive. Herod, at the, at the peak of his reign, on the throne, giving an oration in uh, what Josephus describes as a, a beautiful silver robe, Herod dies on his, or is struck to death on his throne. So they traded places. Or did they? Or did they? All this time, Peter was a child of God, spiritually alive and immortal. All this time, Herod was a child of the devil, spiritually dead and eternally damned. What's our position this morning? Are we relying on a physical position that we've set up of gates and bars and chains and soldiers and guards? We are rich. We are arrayed in fine clothing. We're a good-looking congregation this morning. We look good. We look down on the world from our position as a first-world country. We have billions of people making things for us and processing things. We are the first world. We are kings. That's our physical position. But we saw that God owns the physical reality. Are we here by the grace of God? Do we wake up every day and say, I'm here by the grace of God? I do not own my physical position. I cannot make myself grow a foot and a half overnight. My dad used to ask me that every birthday. Did you grow a foot last night? I can't make myself grow a foot. I cannot keep myself alive. Disappointingly, I can't keep myself from getting worms necessarily. I'll try. Are we here by the grace of God? Will we surrender to that position and give God his due glory? Will we surrender to our position in God? Or will we fight it? Will we develop a deep understanding, a deep understanding of just where it is exactly that we stand in relation to God? I think that's something to meditate on. God, where do I stand in relation to you? You can't get someone saved until you get them lost. You can't appreciate where we are, the gift we have in God, until we realize what our position is in relation to God. I can tell you without hesitation this morning, in all honesty, my position is in God. As a young boy, the preacher asked if I wanted to know for sure that I was going to heaven, and I went forward and I accepted that Jesus Christ died for me. I was a sinner. And I ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins and to come into my heart and be my savior. I, my position is in God. I hope you'll, if you're not in that position, if you're not a child of God this morning, that you will trade Herod's position in all of its physical splendor and safety for Peter's position, even if it means chains in a prison. What is our position? The second trade is the position of the gospel. God sometimes allows Satan or the elements or people 
to have their way in our lives until God overturns. Job, you can see this in Job chapter 2, verse 6, and Job 42, 12. Job is ravaged and decimated by Satan. Decimated. Everything. He loses everything except his wife, who wasn't very helpful at one point. But then lifted up higher than ever by God. God overturned. Israel is in abject slavery. Then God liberates them and makes them a powerhouse. Conquering seven nations greater and mightier than they. God overturned. Joseph languishes in a pit at the hands of his brothers. No, brothers aren't always very nice. But throw you in a pit, sell you into slavery, eh, that's pushing it. But then he commands Potiphar's household. Then he languishes in prison at the hands of Potiphar. But then God overturns and he becomes vice pharaoh. I made that up. That's my term. That's what I would have called myself. Jonah runs from God, ends up in the belly of a great fish, and then preaches the conversion of that most wicked city, Nineveh. The widow at Zarephath was preparing her last meal before her and her son starved to death. And then God provided all they could eat. God overturns. And then her son dies anyway. And God brings him back. God overturns, even death. Saul makes it his personal mission to destroy Christianity. Zealous. Hailing people and putting them in prison. And God converts him and unleashes him on the Gentiles to, quote-unquote, turn the world upside down, was the words of his accusers, with the gospel. Christ humbles himself to be mocked, beaten, robbed, spat upon, shamefully crucified, stabbed, buried, and then he sits at the right hand of God. God overturns. All of mankind is condemned to hell for its sin. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and God comes down in the flesh and sacrifices himself in our place. God overturns. And here is Herod Agrippa, who stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, even killing James. But, in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. The very thing he tried to crush instead flourished and grew. The gospel and its enemies trade places. Or did they? My God wins decisive victories. My God wins decisive victories. Does your God this morning win decisive victories? In Luke chapter 9, verse 50, it says, And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Are we against God this morning? Have we put God's will in chains? And in a prison, and behind two wards, sleeping behind two guards, behind an iron gate. Romans 8.31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? Gamaliel was a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people. And Gamaliel wisely pointed out, what folly it would be 
to be found even to fight against God. What a folly it would be. Are we fighting against God this morning? Do we recognize our position wholly in God? God will have the victory. Let it be known, God will always have the victory. Always. Which side of the victory will we be on? Let's pray.